So the idea of functional medicine is that the body in, and the systems in the body are all connected and interworking. And instead of looking at the GI system as just the GI system, we look at it as how are adrenal hormones? How is the thyroid? How are the gut bacteria? How are all of these things affecting that gut physiology. And then we add nutrition to that. And we add clinical nutrition, not just dietetics. Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey, y'all. I am Jamara, and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of Black midwives and the communities they serve. Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love, nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife RX. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy Now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey. for deciding to come on and join me. I'm so excited to have this chat. Woo, yeah, thanks, here we are. Yeah. For the folks who are going to tune in and listen, will you tell us um, who you are and where you are in the world? I have obviously a bio about you, but I always feel like, tell us who you are. Yeah. So I'm Sarah Thompson. I am a certified functional medicine practitioner who specializes in maternity care. And I am the author of the book, Functional Maternity using functional medicine and nutrition to improve pregnancy and childbirth outcomes. And I am located in Fort Collins, Colorado, USA. That's so cool. That's one of my uh, favorite places in the world, Colorado. And uh, I love what you do. And I have to say, I've been following your work for a little bit. I'm so excited about what it is that you're bringing to the maternity world. And you bridge so many gaps because, um, Obviously, obstetrics and midwifery have their little camps and have trouble talking to each other. Um, and then there's a doula world out there that's big and brave and also fairly isolated. Um, again, a childbirth educator realm that's speaking directly to clients, but may not have any interaction with the providers in the birth itself. Then you have uh, family practice talks or general medicine docs who might come across different issues. And you're kind of bringing this all together. So um, tell us, let's kind of break this apart a little bit because some people aren't familiar with some of the lingo. What does functional medicine mean in its most simple way? Sure. So the running definition of functional medicine currently is root cause medicine. And I have a love hate relationship with that definition because I think it's kind of silly and it doesn't really explain what we're doing with functional medicine. And I wish I had a simple definition, but I don't. So my Give us the big one. Yeah. Give us a big one. Yeah, I want the whole thing. Yeah. My definition of functional medicine is basically taking what we know in Western physiology and applying clinical nutrition to that and kind of connecting the dots. So the idea of functional medicine is that the body in and the systems in the body are all connected and interworking. And instead of looking at the GI system as just the GI system, we look at it as how are adrenal hormones? How is the thyroid? How are the gut bacteria, how are all of these things affecting that gut physiology? And then we add nutrition to that. And we add clinical nutrition, not just dietetics. So we look at, okay, well, we need vitamin A for the cells in the gut to work correctly. We need magnesium. We need all these things for that gut to work the way it's supposed to. And that's kind of the idea of functional medicine. It's kind of bringing all these pieces together so that we can create a whole picture and create a treatment strategy that isn't just, you have thyroid issues, here's thyroid medication. Mm, brilliant. So something else you said was um, the difference between nutrition and cl clinical nutrition. What's the word you used? Like, so there's a difference between like the dietetics. So taking and creating diet 
And then there's ah. a difference between that and clinical nutrition. So with dietetics, basically we're saying, you know, here's your macros, here's your fats, carbs, proteins. How do we balance those? How do we create a diet, right? We, we do some of that in functional medicine, right? Because we are trying to create meals and a plan that works with patients in order to get the individual nutrients that they need, because let's be honest, nutrients are better absorbed through food. And we love to have food as the base of nutrition. But the idea is to create function in the body through the clinical aspect, meaning taking specific foods, taking specific diet uh, nutrients and focusing on those to create a function in the body. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, not just dietitians, clinical nutritionists are focused on functional medicine. In fact, you're one of the rarities, right? There's a lot of dietitian focus that is actually skipping functional medicine entirely and, and just playing with macros, right? But yeah. so, so what, what you're doing is taking your field, uh, clinical nutrition, and applying it to or I don't know which one's applied to which, but somehow you're mixing this real focus on the, the root cause analysis, or like you said, this um, optimal functioning in the body and looking at it from this clinical nutritional standpoint. But there are other providers who are using the same term functional medicine. Mm-hmm. So there are chiropractors out there talking about functional medicine and acupuncture is talking about functional medicine and MDs talking about functional medicine. And of course, naturopaths have long been tooting this horn. So how does this all come together? What is the similarity between all those different provider types and this name? So functional medicine is basically just almost like a certification off of a medical license. So anybody who has a medical license, a nurse midwife, a uh, home birth midwife, acupuncturist, chiropractors, naturopathic physicians, MDs, DOs, uh, regular dietitians, not that they're regular, but <laughs> dietitians, anybody who has a degree that is based on some element of healthcare can go and do the training for functional medicine and become a certified functional medicine practitioner. You can't become a functional medicine practitioner if you don't already have a base, at least within the certification realm. Of course, there's little trainings out there where, you know, people come out as health coaches, right? But it's not full functional medicine. They aren't able to do a lot of the things that the medical providers who are trained in functional medicine can do, such as running labs and, and really analyzing things at a deeper level. They become more functional dietitians. Yeah, it's a real passion of mine. So that's why I'm just so excited about what you're doing. Um, And it's definitely the direction that my uh, clinical practice has moved is is in this direction. And um, of course, one of the more famous uh, uh, functional medicine practitioners is Aviva Ram, Mm -hmm. um, who was a home birth midwife and then went back to school and became an MD at Yale University. And she's really doing a tremendous job in bringing attention to hormones and functional medicine. Yes. Um, So yeah, people can check that out. And there's lots of lots and lots of other practitioners who are finally starting to see the wisdom. And I almost, this is a little bit me, I'm probably not mainstream knowledge, but I almost feel like functional medicine is like the midwifery for medicine. You know, it's like, you know, midwives have always thought about all the pieces and the whole person and the whole family and the influence, you know, globally. And so it's really exciting to see some mainstream folks finally moving in this direction and thinking about the whole person the whole food idea, the whole, you know, holism for sure. And it's one of the reasons actually you say that, that I love speaking with midwives and, and kind of explaining how functional medicine can play into the maternity care aspect, because you guys are poised, right? Midwifery is poised to make these changes and support people who are pregnant and looking for this more natural approach to prevent complications. And if we can prevent the complications, we have better pregnancy and childbirth outcomes, right? That's the goal. Absolutely. And if we have better childbirth outcomes, we set the next generation up for better health success. Absolutely. And, and of course, that's a huge part of our focus, but that's a huge part of your focus because you have focused on maternity care almost exclusively, right? So tell me, how did you get into that? Tell us a little bit about your personality. Like, how did you end up here? Well, so my personality, if we go there, is very much 
I want to know everything about what, what I'm passionate about. And in my book, I do a little snippet about how when I was a kid, I was obsessed with dogs. And it seems to make absolutely no sense, but it really gives a clue as to who I am as a person. And I read every single book I could get my hands on when I was a kid about dog breeds and the history of different breeds and where they came from and why they were bred to be what they are and all of that. And my husband gets annoyed because we walk down the street, I'm like, that's an Irish wolfhound. I have to go say hi, you know, or something like that, because it's still in my head that I'm like, oh my God, that's so cool, right? We don't see those very often. So I never planned to have kids. It was not in my personal goal plan. And when okay. my husband and I got married, we got pregnant. And I remember going, oh, I better learn a little bit about this, huh? <laughs> and that was kind of the trigger for diving down this rabbit hole of maternity care. And we lived in an area at the time where I should have, you know, had the best maternity care available, a very, you know, popular modern city. And I was fully disappointed with the, the answers I was getting to the questions I was asking. And much of the questions I was asking was talking about nutrition. Because even though I, you know, hadn't been in this world yet, I have always used nutrition in practice. And my practice prior to was a lot of sports medicine, pain management. We still talked about diet. We still talked about how nutrition affects pain receptors, how nutrition affects inflammatory responses. And when I became pregnant, I knew there was more that needed to be, be found, right? Because I was asking, hey, so what should I be doing right now? And they're like, oh, you know, just don't eat oysters and don't eat lunch meat. And I'm like, mm, that's it? Okay. All right. I feel like there should be more here. Um, uh, yeah. Pineapples <laughs> might start your labor, right? Oh exactly. <laughs> right? Things like that where you're like, okay, I feel as though um, I'm missing something. Yeah. And so a lot when in of- fact, oysters are, <laughs> anyway, we won't exactly. go into, yeah, go into right, that. Right, right. Yes. We tell yeah, people yeah, yeah, to, okay. to eat oysters yeah. all the time in pregnancy now. Like yeah, you need exactly. the zinc, you need a lot of zinc. Exactly, let's, let's exactly, exactly. So it, it became a rabbit hole and I was, I became slightly, I had always kind of knew a little bit about like the uh, Dr. Weston Price yep. mentality. I'd read the book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And I started to dive into that aspect more. And it was, that's kind of the trigger, right? And so I kind of just rabbit holed myself down this journey over the last yeah. 15 years of focusing my entire practice on pregnancy care because there was a lack of knowledge. There was a lack of support. And even within like the prenatal nutrition world, the focus was always on growing a baby right? Let's make healthy babies. This is the nutrition that goes into fetal development. This is what goes into helping their lungs, whatever it was. But then I was like, well, what about me? Yeah. I want to come out of this feeling like I didn't just get completely drained. Yeah. And so that's kind of the rabbit hole is I started going, okay, what's happening here? What's happening in my body and what's happening in the bodies of my patients? And how do we support that function and make it work better? And the further and further I dove down that rabbit hole, the more and more research I found connecting different individual nutrients with specific processes that go into things like labor and delivery. I'm like, why is nobody talking about this? Why do we not talk about magnesium and the need for magnesium for oxytocin receptors to work? And Mm. right. I just want a hallelujah right now. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And why does the RDA have magnesium listed as 350 milligrams per day is the RDA when outside of pregnancy, it's 450. When we, when you look at the function and the physiology, you see that's not right. And it's because there's been very, very few research studies done on nutrition in the maternal physiology. Right. Now, luckily in the last several years, we've seen that change partly because our maternal health stats, at least here in the U S are so bad and they're getting worse each year. We're not getting better. And so now there's more of like, a, oh no, this is a problem. Maybe we should look into this from a different angle versus just crisis management. How do we prevent mm-hmm. these things from mm-hmm. happening? And I feel very strongly that understanding clinical nutrition and how that plays into physiology of the maternal physiology is one of the keys to changing those stats 
once you start understanding what's happening in that maternal physiology and how nutrition plays into it, and you start to see, wow, okay, so these nutritional insufficiencies and deficiencies are real, and there's not a lot of research into how those affect the body, you start to kind of piece it together and go, you know what, this is, this could be one of the things that helps us get out of this spiraling pattern. Yes. God, it's amazing. I I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm your cheerleader. I'm, I, that's all I can say. Well, so let's dive into a little bit of the, the depths here. Um, so where would you like to start? Like what part of the nutrition, body, pregnancy development, core nutrients, food yeah. place was like the most surprising. Like we talked about magnesium. What else was the most surprising to you? And I know that you don't actually focus a ton on supplements. You're focusing on whole foods to get those nutrients. So tell me about how that happens in your practice. So in our practice, we're definitely working on food base. Do we need supplements from time to time? Absolutely. It's sometimes really difficult to turn those nutritional deficiencies around in the short amount of time we have in pregnancy care. Because unlike outside of pregnancy care, we kind of have unlimited time, right? Like, yeah, okay, no, let's take our time and let's slowly build you up here. But in pregnancy, we don't have that. We are on a time crunch. And that's right. The maternal physiology is changing week by week by week. Rapidly. By week. Rapidly. The needs are increasing. Exactly. Yeah. So sometimes we are absolutely throwing in supplements or even That's right. things like infusions, injections. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. This is what I do in my practice now. And it's been really profound. I have to say, you know, early in my career, I'm just going to jump in here because I think this is a similar pathway. Early in my career, I was like, really one of the, the crunchy, I mean, I hate labels, but I was one of the crunchy, crunchy granola E ones. And I was like, you know, um, really a kind of pure focus, like food and nutrition should be enough. Humans have been existing for a millennia, blah, blah, blah. But the further I got into truly understanding the clinical aspects and clinical evaluation and optimal levels, the more I realized how dramatically deficient so much of our population is. 52% of the global maternity population suffer from iron deficiency. That's extreme, right? That, and we didn't get here overnight, but many of us, unfortunately, are just sort of waking up to the crisis that we are in as a planet in many areas. I mean, Lord knows, you can name in any, any, any topic, I'll tell you about a crisis. But in maternity specifically, we have a crisis of malnutrition and it's like fed malnutrition, right? It's like obese malnutrition. It's just like these, these folks who are starving despite not feeling hungry. Right. And so it sounds like you're discovering this too. So what I've discovered in my practice over the last couple of years is that we have to do a dramatic change in order to get to some level of optimal to prevent some of the most dangerous and scary side effects. I mean, in the US alone, we're looking at, you know, prematurity and low birth weight and hemorrhage and in post-operative infections and, you know, a crisis of diabetes and obesity, like, you know, the list is on and on. And we just can't do it with food alone, especially with our toxic water and our polluted air and GMOs and loss of topsoil. I mean, we could kind of go on and on, we could. But, but we have to do something dramatic for that. This is how I feel. The people sitting in front of me are saying, please help me. I'm either in crisis now or clinically I'm about to be in crisis. What do I do? How do I get better? And so, yeah, we have added all manner of injections, infusions, et cetera, et cetera, for various things. So tell me about that evolution in your practice. And what was the most shocking discovery for you? Ooh, as far as like the IV nutrition type stuff? Well, any of it, any of like any of it where you were like, why don't people know this? The magnesium oh. is one. What I else? think one of my biggest things is why nobody talks about the preparation for childbirth and all the different things that go into what's happening in the like, maternal physiology. Like preconception, like preconception no, counseling. Like during pregnancy itself, your body, if you're pregnant, starts to prepare for the childbirth experience at 24 to 28 weeks. We have physical changes happening in the maternal physiology that have to happen at that time frame for you to actually go into labor and deliver 
a vaginal mm. birth functionally. And mm. nobody talks about this. When you talk about, let's prepare for labor, it tends to be, oh, you're 36 weeks. You know, let's start preparing for labor. Let's get that cervix ready. And that cervix should have been getting ready months ago. Yeah, yeah. And Tell me about that. about that. So because I, the, the, the opposite is what's happening. People are panicked about incompetent cervix. Yes. Right? Yes. So they're saying, don't do anything. Don't do, you might go into premature labor. Yeah. So we talk a lot about the cervix and, you know, there's been great studies. And one of the reasons that you see that, you know, induction processes change from just giving straight to Pitocin to, yeah, we have to have a favorable cervix before we can uh-huh. use Pitocin because uh-huh. there were studies that talked about you know, and they use things like uh, prostaglandins versus pitocin uh-huh. versus there was uh-huh. a, another one they tried called hyaluronic acid. We uh-huh. can talk about that a little bit. And what they found is that, you know, using prostaglandins, using cervical ripening agents opened mm-hmm. that cervix faster. We had more vaginal births in a 24 hour period. And it was because they, they softened the door. They opened it. They unlocked it. Yeah. And you yeah. can't just bang on a door and expect it to open. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting is that in a normal functional pregnancy time frame, that cervix starts to remodel itself starting at that 24 to 28, 28 week period. And there should be nutrients and things that help to prevent preterm labor during that process. And if you look at like the risk of things like premature ripening of the cervix, it's usually around that time frame that you see that the shortening of the cervix, preterm labor, and it's usually the body doing what it's supposed to do, but it doesn't have the mitigating agents that help to balance those inflammatory reactions. Because everything that leads up to labor and delivery is an inflammatory reaction. It's high omega-6, it's high prostaglandin. We need that to happen, but we also have to balance it. And one of the things that I am a big proponent of and something that really modern and conventional uh, obstetrical care doesn't do is checking things like progesterone levels in the third trimester. We never Mm. do this. Mm. Tell me more, tell me more. So one of the things we see is we always test the progesterone in the first trimester if we've already had like a history of miscarriage. It's not just standard care. You know, our goal is to have uh, a nice little value of serum of a 25. That's that's the magic number in the first trimester. Anything over 25 is Yeah, but by the third trimester, progesterone should actually be somewhere between 100 and 300. And why? Why does it raise? Partly because it's Cervical mitigating. Ripening. No, yeah. it's, it's it's helping to prevent an over ripening of the cervix. So what happens really? I draw my little diagram and talk it out at the same time because that's how my brain yeah, works. Sure. I'm, a, I'm a picture yeah, person. Sure. Yeah. So what happens is. Usually what happens is the fetus is producing two very important hormones. And in fact, the adrenal glands of the fetus are the size of the ki- of kidneys at that 24 week mark. They're huge. And they're producing two very important chemicals, cortisol and DHEA. Now cortisol is our big guy here. So cortisol is going to tell your the, the maternal physiology too that we have a stress, we have inflammation, we have something happening, and the maternal adrenal glands are going to produce more cortisol. This cortisol has lots of jobs. One of its big ones is remodeling the cervix. So up until this point, progesterone has kept the fibers. So the, the, the cervix is a big ball of collagen fibers. Up until this point, those fibers have been a big nested ball of fibers, all tangled up, tight, high, right? We don't want that baby to fall out. And what happens is cortisol starts to change the actual structure of those collagen fibers. We call remodeling. And it takes those fibers and unwinds them and makes them parallel, okay? But we shouldn't have any flex. They should be rigid. They shouldn't be softening. They should be rigid, but just changing structure. And what helps to prevent that is things like vitamin C and vitamin E, two very important antioxidants. We have fat-soluble and a water-soluble antioxidant that help to reduce the inflammation, can maintain the structure of that collagen fiber so that we don't go into preterm labor. And we'll see study after study linking vitamin C and vitamin E deficiencies with preterm labor, right? And it's it's because Mm -hmm. the body, the maternal physiology is making these changes like it's supposed to but it's not balanced, right? Yeah, it doesn't have what it needs. Exactly. And so what we'll see is as these cortisol levels rise, so do levels of progesterone because that helps to maintain the structure, right? Without us going to the next stage too fast. And we'll see those levels kind of going 
together up, 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 up from that 24, 28 week mark through 36, 37 weeks. Then that progesterone drops and then cortisol really starts to make changes. But all mm-hmm. this time leading up to that mark, we are making changes in the cervix. So as cortisol starts to remodel the cervix, the other thing it starts to do is it starts to signal oxytocin production on the inside of the uterus, okay? So the uterine tissues themselves, the placenta, the amniotic sac, all of that stuff, the uterus itself, produce oxytocin, okay? So keep that in the back of your head. So the next little hormone that was produced was that DHEA. Now that DHEA gets converted to estrogen by the placenta, then sent into the maternal physiology. So when you measure serum estrogen levels and you see these crazy high levels of estrogen in pregnancy, they're not mom's estrogen, they're babies and the placental estrogens, which is pretty cool. That estrogen has a lot of different jobs too. And that starts again at that 24, 28 week mark, right? If you're taking serum levels of cortisol and estrogen, they kind of slowly rise, slowly rise, slowly rise. And then they hit this mark and they just skyrocket. And every week they're doubling. I mean, there's huge changes in the numbers of these hormones. And it's because these hormones are making those changes in the maternal physiology that are leading to a functional labor experience. So what is estrogen doing? Well, the first thing it's doing is it's helping to stimulate the production of prostaglandins, specifically these inflammatory series two prostaglandins, PGE2, PGF2 alpha. Those guys help to also stimulate some oxytocin and stimulate the production of oxytocin receptors on the inside of the uterus. So now we've got this lovely little connection of things happening that are gonna start making Braxton Hicks contractions on the inside of the uterus, right? Now those Braxton Hicks contractions have a purpose. Yes, they help to tone that uterus, right? We need to- They have a horrible name though. See, I call them toning contractions. I like Braxton Hicks, but that's some dude's name on our body parts. It doesn't really help. But but toning contractions are doing exactly what they're supposed to be. They're strengthening the uterine muscle and getting the practice in. Yeah, keep going. Tell us the rest of the story. But they're also helping to increase the production of prostaglandin receptors on the cervix. So the more Ah. oxytocin you have in the uterus, the more of these receptors get made. Now, if you're just giving somebody pitocin, right, at the tail end, you're not going to get those receptors. It takes time. We're we're starting Mm. this process back at 2020. Yeah, it's so brilliant. And really, uh, again, this is why I love the the functional medicine filter as you see things so differently. You know, I don't even know what the statistic is, but a huge amount of women get diagnosed with failure to progress. Oh, I hate that. Yes. Oh, yeah, right. Or um, what's the other one is a failed induction. And Mm -hmm. these are all just... you know, they've got them at the highest amount of Pitocin possible, you know, dripping like mad for 24, 36, 48 hours on a pit drip and they don't have a baby. And they're like, oh, we can't bring it up any higher. You know, it's because of total saturation because the receptor sites are all saturated because there aren't enough receptors. So this is what I love. Ah, So keep going. So let's go here. Yeah. So why would somebody not have enough oxytocin receptors? Let's go there. So the other thing estrogen is doing is it's helping to make these oxytocin receptors on the outside of the uterus that are going to be our primary drivers of functional contractions and labor and delivery. Now, this is where I get like super excited. And when I teach at the conference this November, we're going to talk a lot about this. Okay. I'm so excited. Yeah. Is in order to make oxytocin receptors that you're going to use in labor and delivery, you need a whole bunch of stuff. Now, typically, Oxytocin receptors have a very short lifespan. They only live for a couple of days and then they get dissolved. Well, that's not going to work. We need to develop and hold on to as many oxytocin receptors as possible. To do that, we need cholesterol. We need a lot of cholesterol. It stabilizes these receptors in the cells. It holds that receptor in place in that cell membrane. Okay. So if you're not getting enough cholesterol, it's sticky. sticky. Exactly. Yeah. And we of course have a fear of fats in, in society and that has got to go. And we wonder why we have a 30% induction rate and a 30% cesarean rate, right? Oh yeah. yeah. It's all, you love it. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. The next thing you need is vitamin A specifically in the retinoic acid form. 
Okay. So this is an not inner- beta carotene, not, not beta, beta carotene, carotene. Right? Not beta, no carrots, no carrots. Right okay, now, <laughs> some element of beta carotene does get converted into retinoic acid. It's a 15, like tiny, tiny amount, tiny 15% amount. max conversion rate. And in order for you to convert beta carotene into retinoic acid, you need T4 thyroid hormone. And subclinical hypothyroidism in the third trimester, we're talking a TSH at 2.5 or more, is associated with labor and delivery complications, stalled labors, failed inductions, and I'm going to talk about this more in the November, postpartum hemorrhage. Right? Because, I've just been reading those statistics, actually. Yes. It's shocking. Now, they go, well, that's interesting. Why? Well, maybe it's because we need T4 to convert beta carotene into retinoic acid, right? Retinoic mm. acid in and of itself is very difficult to find in the diet. The liver does have to process retinols and retinols uh, into retinoic acid, right? We do need the dietary retinoids. We do need beta carotene, but we also have to convert them. But I'm a personally a huge fan of getting our vitamin A from organ meat because that's yes. where it's most bioavailable, but- absolutely. I'm a big yeah. fan of liver. I'm a big fan of yeah. heart. I'm a big fan of yeah. kidneys. Spleen. I'm a big fan of, yep, spleen. And I'm a big fan of eggs. We yeah. need eggs, eggs oh, a lot yes. in dietary yes, me management. Too. Me too, me too, so much. Eggs is like my go-to. Yes. Uh, vegetarian, uh, eggs is like the, the best whole food that they can choose for yeah. sure. Well, yes. What do, what do eggs do? They grow babies. Chickens. Right? Yes, they exactly. have everything you need other than yes. that are actually in the shelf to grow babies and yes. really support maternal physiology. Yes, exactly. I want to go back to these thyroid levels because yes. some of our listeners are midwives who are in yes. clinical practice right now and their minds are being blown and they're so excited and they want more specifics. So I just pulled open my own charting software because I wanted to verify that this is correct. And I think it is. Yeah. So the upper range of normal for TSH is still listed as over four. Yeah. It's like 4.5, so, five, depending on what you're looking at. 4.5, 4 4.05 to 4.5. So, so tell me again, the upper cutoff where you're seeing the changes. Two so point according to these studies, it's a TSH greater than 2.5. Is showing yeah, and the other subclinical hypothyroidism, which right. then results in dysfunctional labors. Yes. So the Endocrine Society here in the U.S. has recommended changing the TSH values for pregnancy, and what they are referencing and what they want to see be the more standard is first trimester 0.2 to 2.5, second trimester 0.3 to 3.5, and third trimester 0.3 to 3.5. I think they're going to probably start bringing down that third trimester one simply because we're seeing more and more studies since 2019 coming out and kind of connecting this, this subclinical patterning with more specifically labor and delivery complications and then postpartum complications. And it's a bigger picture, right? Because there's more than just TSH involved here. When I run thyroid, we're looking at free T4, T3 and total T4, T3, because what you'll see too is that total T4 and T3 do increase in pregnancy. Free T4 and T3 should stay about the same as they were uh, preconception into pregnancy. And what about reverse T3, reverse T4? Do you reverse, check that as well? Yeah, I do in the first trimester typically, uh, simply because we do see an increase in reverse T3 in the first trimester as that. Uh, the trophoblast cells of the embryo take T4, convert it into T3, and then we see an offshoot of reverse T3 and extra iodine in the system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How interesting. Well, there's so much more to cover about this. And tell us again the topic of your presentation in November. Yeah. So it's thyroid physiology and nutrition in maternity care, a functional medicine. So perfect. Yeah. So we're going to go a lot deeper into this in November. Oh, yes. Those of you who don't know, um, the Midwifery Wisdom Experience is a conference and skills and drills experience combo. I don't know. It's going to be a wild thing. It's in Galveston, Texas, um, November 10th through the 14th. And 
Sarah is one of our speakers. Well, so let's take a different tact. Um, and I'd love it if you could give me a case study. Do you have someone you've worked with recently or you're currently working with? Um, and uh, what's, what's one of your favorite topics right now? What are you digging deep into? Oh, let's see here. So many things. So let's use, so I had a really great case study from last summer, actually, that was a help syndrome patient, mm. okay? And didn't have, she had, she had a slight rise in her blood pressure. That was it. No protein in her urine, none of that. We ran early labs on her. Um, her primary care didn't want to run labs because she didn't have protein in her urine. I'm a big fan of running labs, right? So of course we did a CBC and a metabolic, pretty, pretty straightforward and simple. And sure enough, her hemoglobins, she had health syndrome, liver, liver enzymes were elevated, hemoglobin was through the roof. And um, we kind of looked at it and went, oh, dang it. Well, at least we found it, right? So we did a little bit of an experimental treatment on her with the idea of holding that baby in as long as we could, right? This becomes that right. crisis management aspect. Right, right, right. Where there's only so much we can do. We can't reverse placental damage. We can't reverse dysfunctional placenta. That happened in first trimester. That's preconception stuff. What we can do is help to mitigate those negative effects that are happening within the maternal physiology, again, by understanding the functional aspect. So what we did is if we're looking at things like, you know, the elevated hemoglobin levels, right? What causes elevated hemoglobin levels in these scenarios is basically fetal hemoglobin spilling into the maternal physiology. Mm. And hemoglobin is full of things like iron, right? So we, what we end up getting is almost like an iron toxicity in the system. Whoa. And interestingly enough, I don't know if you're familiar with the superoxide dismutase enzyme family. So there's a group of enzymes and their job is to reduce inflammation and specifically in the liver and the kidneys and the placenta, which is very interesting. And yeah. you'll see superoxide dismutase production increases throughout the third trimester. And what's interesting about that is we have different types of sod enzymes, but there's one in particular that's a manganese iron sod enzyme. And what's interesting about that is that manganese, so, so superoxide dismutase is a metallic enzyme, meaning it's like an enzyme that has metal in it. Specifically in this case, either a manganese mineral or an iron, okay? Mm -hmm. And this is getting kind of deep, but- It's okay, we, we want to hear it. Go okay. for it, go for it. <laughs> so when we have these excess hemoglobins in the bloodstream, what happens is those extra irons actually replace manganese in those superoxide dismutase enzymes and neutralize them. So iron in that is a neutralizer, which has a purpose, right? We don't always need this element of, uh, of antioxidant function. We have to balance everything in life is you know yin and yang, right? We need a little bit of both. But when we have this spilling of hemoglobin from the fetus into the maternal physiology, it neutralizes too many of these superoxide dismutase enzymes. And now we get inflammation and we get damage throughout the system. So what we did with her is we actually gave her a high dose manganese supplement plus supplemented her with a superoxide dismutase supplement in and of itself. Okay. We did some other things, but that was kind of the neat one. And then what happened is we tested her blood in a couple of weeks and all of her stuff went down. Wow. Hemoglobin Excellent. levels went down. Okay. We saw her liver enzymes go down and we, they went down so far that help syndrome wasn't even the diagnosis anymore. Wow. So did that's it make, amazing. Did it make her progression of preeclampsia go away, go away? No, no. She ended up, but it needing, took her out of an acute phase. Exactly. So we were able to take her from, you know, I think this was happening. I want to say it was like 29 ish weeks that this popped up. She went to term. Awesome. Right. Did she have some symptoms popping up at the end? Absolutely. Did she need to be induced? Absolutely. But we were able to sustain that pregnancy longer than what her physician told her was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. We also did a lot of dietary stuff. So we had her drinking large amounts of dairy every day. And I had her the calcium ions compete for the uh, iron uptakes and, and yep. reduce so that. we have an mm -hmm. element of that. We also, what happens to is uh, dairy also has a, a 
compound called insulin-like growth factor in it. Mm, mm. And typically when we have a healthy placenta, the placenta produces large amounts of placental insulin-like growth factor. And so mm. we're actually supplementing some of the, the hormones that should be produced by the placenta with, with dairy. So it's a kind of a great little treatment for any preeclampsia. Honestly, I use it Love all the it. time and we'll have Love them drink it. a 16 ounce glass of whole milk, no skim milk, that stuff's junk yeah. um, with each meal. Yeah. And, and that, that harkens back to, um, blue ribbon babies. And, um, of course our, our original champion of, of, uh, preeclampsia, which is, uh, the, the brewer diet. Do you remember yes. studying that back yes. in the day? Exactly. I think so he had some points, but he missed some point. I, I'm yes. actually, I can, can we jump into this? Because my evaluation for a long time has been, um, is that his recommendations have protein, but they actually have a ton of fat and it's the fat that was making the difference. What, what's your take on this? I think it was a combination of both. So yeah. what we'll see too is, you know, and again, most of the time preeclampsia is happening in this third trimester range. Right. But it, Again, it, the origins are back in the, in the very beginning, but exactly, yeah. exactly. So really when you're, mm-hmm. anytime you're treating preeclampsia, it's just crisis management. You're just mm-hmm. managing mm-hmm. what's happening and you can't fix, role, you can't fix yeah. it. You're just yeah, writing exactly. the coaster and helping that maternal physiology survive it <laughs> in a way yeah. and mitigate those negative symptoms as long as we can to get. So the baby term. can stay in. Yeah, right. exactly. And mom yeah. doesn't, doesn't have, um, as severe health consequences. Mm-hmm, but, um, mm-hmm. oh gosh, what was it? Oh, the fat component. So usually yeah. oftentimes with that protein, especially if they're spilling protein is we know that they're losing a percentage of the protein they're consuming and by right. over protein dieting, <laughs> right. Giving them so much protein in the diet. We're not fixing that. We're just no. basically flooding the system, knowing that there's a hole at the bottom so that the maternal right. physiology doesn't become protein deficient. Because right. protein, 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 we need so much protein, especially in that third trimester for enzymes, right? Proteins make enzymes. Oxytocin in and of itself is a protein-based hormone. Two of those uh, amino acids that make up oxytocin are essential amino acids that you have to get from the diet. And when you know it, dairy's full of them. So there's all these things that we're just basically managing, right? The other thing is calcium. Calcium is the yep. only nutrient known to help acute preeclampsia symptoms. Right. Right. With the other things, but in the research, that's the only one that's been verified. Yes, give them high dose calcium, it helps. Um, the fat component. Yeah. Interestingly, what we'll see too is, is in that third trimester, the maternal metabolism changes dramatically. And part of it is this placental production of lactogen. Lactogens are a whole group of different, different hormones, but what they do in this scenario, in this specific lactogen that we're talking about is it blocks the maternal insulin from being able to pull large amounts of glucose into her cells. So that glucose can go to baby. So we got a nice fat, chunky little baby, right? We need to grow body fat on that baby. So instead the maternal physiology runs primarily off of dietary fats. And so sometimes adding these large amounts of fats help her body at a cellular level function more effectively. Yeah, I think so too. And also many of these fats that he was recommending are high in that D, vitamin D, vitamin A, these really essential core nutrients. Yeah, tell us more. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll see too, um, again, the vitamin A component is, or vitamin A for, we talked about that, the oxytocin side, vitamin D is also huge, right? Throughout the third trimester, we see a huge influx in vitamin D receptor formation, which again, back to that progesterone side, progesterone stimulates the production of vitamin D receptors. And so if you're low progesterone in the third trimester, in fact, it's very interesting that low progesterone symptoms mimic vitamin D deficiency symptoms. And there's a kind of a correlation there with- Oh my God, I've seen that 100%. Yeah. Yeah, so in India, this is a thing they have every single, like they put everyone on progesterone everyone goes on progesterone supplements. Interesting. It's like ecosprin, baby aspirin and progesterone. It's like candy here. And, um, I, I, te- I do their labs and I'm like, but you're vitamin D deficient. Your vitamin D is 18, seven, three. Yeah. I mean, like I've drawn some crazy levels and I'm like, yeah, but, but, <laughs> but of course, once they start on progesterone, I don't want to take them off till they're through no. the first trimester. And so it's this whole thing, but yeah. So tell us more about that correlation. What are you seeing there? Well, what you'll see just in the studies is like low progesterone and low vitamin D are both associated with more placental dysfunction. 
and, and it miscarriage. becomes and miscarriage and a number of different things. We'll see uh, more gestational diabetes associated with vitamin yeah. D deficiency. And it becomes yeah. this interesting thing because vitamin D is necessary for the regulation of the first enzyme in steroidogenesis. So the side chain cleavage enzyme that takes cholesterol and turns it into pregnenolone and then turns it into progesterone is regulated by vitamin D. And then, Hold on. right? So if you're vitamin D deficient, you're more likely to be progesterone deficient. And if you're progesterone yes. deficient, you're more likely to have less vitamin D receptors in the placenta itself. So both of those things can become the cyclical cause of placental dysfunction, especially if this was happening in the first trimester exactly. when those trophoblast cells were developing into the placenta. Exactly. It's like a chicken or the egg thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, but we, but uh, we can get out of this cycle by vitamin D supplementation. And I would love to go into this for a quick second with you. Um, I'm sort of following that Dr. Horlick kind of idea of like sun is so, so much better than supplementing. But we have a paranoia and a crisis around sun exposure. And so tell me where you fall on this. So where I live in Colorado, we can definitely get vitamin D from the sun, but only for a small uh -huh. amount of time, simply because of where we live in the world. Okay. And I think yeah. that makes a big difference. And like you, you, you do a lot of work internationally, right? Yeah. I also it changes work, where you it are. Changes. Yeah. It totally changes where you are on the earth changes your ability to convert vitamin D from the sun. You also need zinc cholesterol and boron. You have to have all of that to convert UV rays into vitamin D. So there's a whole- And then once vitamin D is in the body to be able to utilize it, you also need magnesium yes. and B12 and enough yes. iron and all it's a whole stuff. chain reaction. It's a whole chain reaction. So do you, do you recommend, I like this, um, this app called D-Minder. Do you ever Ooh, download that? I haven't that? seen that, no. It's really cool. I highly recommend it. It's free. Um, yeah. Dr. Horlick's group started it. And you can put in your um, melanated version of your skin. And it's a, like a little slide bar. And then you can choose how much clothes you have covering your body, 70, 75%, 25%, whatever kind of day it is. Yeah. Um, and, and then based on your geographic location, it'll calculate exactly how much sun you absorb that day and what you could have converted into vitamin D. So it's a oh, fantastic way to cool. figure out if you need supplements or if you're getting it yeah. enough. So I love that one. But it does change a lot based on the season, the part of the country you're in, um, what, like where I am, it's not socially acceptable to sun very much. Right. Um, and, and so these are all, all things that go into the conversation. So Absolutely. to me, I take a very balanced approach and I think a lot about what's possible. Um, I've always, for my whole year, my whole career as a midwife, I've always imagined that I'm going to meet someone right where they are and help walk them towards optimal health for them wherever we are, that's where we start. There's no like better, worse, anything like that. And so, um, we're moving towards optimal. And for some people, that means that they're going to get a, a good amount of sensible sun and use the app and really start to manage their sun exposure. For other people, that means that they have to be on a supplement yes. or that even they need injections, um, of D3 in order to bump their numbers up enough, because we just found out their deficiency six weeks before they're due that kind of thing. Right. So tell me where you land on the vitamin D conversation about right What's there. your favorite. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I definitely, again, where I am based here in Colorado, I see a lot more vitamin D deficiency simply because we're above the 37th parallel and we are at altitude. So right. we don't get the UV rays year round. So actually from like right. November, October through about March, we can't even make vitamin D from the sun here. You right. have to get it. And that's one of the great things about vitamin D is it's an accumulative nutrient, right? Your body stores it and then uses it throughout that time frame. So I'm a big fan here anyways, especially with my winter pregnancies, we supplement, right? We have high rates mm -hmm. of preeclampsia here in Colorado too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. theories kind of go, Hey, it's because vitamin D deficiency is more common. And we do see that winter pregnancies have more preeclampsia. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. And prematurity as well. And yeah, prematurity. I've, I've, yep. Yeah. I've had a lot of clients in Colorado as well. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that's so interesting. So tell me when you have someone who comes in vitamin D deficient and you're saying can't manufacture, it's the winter. What are you recommending? What's their food source? What's their supplement? What, what's your yeah. go-to? So we are doing usually injections. We'll start there. We do a pretty high dose vitamin D typically. Um, 60,000 so, IU? No, I don't usually go that high. Uh, usually okay. we're just doing, you know, honestly, 20,000. Yeah, it just oh, depends. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Depends on where they're at on those. And levels. multiple times in their pregnancy. 
Are you rechecking levels? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We'll retest yeah. almost monthly. Yeah. And adjust and adjust dosages based off that. So okay. usually if we're doing a good supplement plus the injections, plus trying to get things in the diet that are rich in vitamin D, then, mm -hmm. then we do pretty good in bringing that up pretty quick. Mm -hmm. My goal is mm -hmm. to get that up in four weeks. That's cool. And so then what's your optimal and is it enamol or, um, uh, which measurement do you use and what's your optimal level? Yep. Uh, for supplementation? Uh, no, for the labs. Oh, for the labs, for the labs. We're looking for anything over 40, 40 in GML. In GML. Okay. Yeah. And uh, do you have the upper limit? Do you feel like an upper limit is a reality? I, I personally have never drawn anyone close to an upper limit in, yeah. in 25 years. So I'm wondering if you, if, yeah. yeah. I do have an upper limit. It's definitely a little higher than what the reference range is. So we'll go just over a hundred is okay. If you start to hit like 120, then I'm going to Have you make... ever drawn it? Have you ever drawn it that high? Once. Yeah. Just <laughs> once. Just once. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's a lot. <laughs> we should bring you yeah. down. The problem is, and again, there's not a lot of information on it, but it's that yeah. idea of maybe getting calcium deposits places in the body yeah. that we don't want, especially yeah. in pregnancy where the placenta itself is already prone to calcification that yeah. we just kind of want to, we have that lovely range, right? We want to have yeah. that, that, that nice little bell curve. Let's get in the middle. So I'm opting for 70, 70 is for mm -hmm. my, is really my optimal in that measurement. Um, yeah about 185 or something in, in the NMLs, which is what they do over here. Okay. Um, and the standard here is to do 60,000 uh, injections once in pregnancy. And I have kind of been thinking, Ooh, I'd really like to break that up. And I, I, yeah. I love that that's what you're doing and doing the blood tests more often, because yeah. frankly, you, you, um, everyone here is so deficient. You couldn't possibly get near, near overdose, but you know, how does the body utilize that much at once? That's my question. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, because we just don't know a lot we about those crazy, like the really big high doses on how the body stores it and then uses yeah. it. You know, yeah. I think that's where, in my opinion, I mean, that's how I work. I, I like to do smaller doses and bring them up. Yeah. Yeah. And watch it. Well, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Hmm. Well, so lots to think about here. <laughs> my, my clinical brain's like, hmm, I want to keep talking. Positive. I know. Well, we'll, and this is great because I'm a huge fan of medical philosophical debate, right? Because yeah. we've all read stuff. We, we learn have, from each other. We're all yeah. Learning. And you may yeah. have a different protocol and I might have a different protocol, but yeah, they both work or, hmm, I kind of like what you're doing over there. Like that's really making yeah. changes. Well, we're doing 60,000 in pregnancy and then in postpartum. And, um, that as a single, seems to sing, as a single, single injection. IM injection. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, we test in the third trimester and then we test again, postpartum and they almost everyone needs another injection. Yeah. Um, and then we try to start them on food source and supplementation, um, to see if we can't have a maintenance throughout. Um, okay. Well, let's, um, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, we had a fantastic dip into vitamin D, which I love. Um, and here's another really startling statistic. Uh, babies who are born to mothers who are vitamin B12 deficient lose IQ points that can never be regained. And B12 is um, also one of those uh, only real animal source products. Of course, nutritional yeast um, has B12, but uh, the, the main source for most people is uh, meat and organ meats. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a real crisis, I think, of mothers giving birth deficient and then their babies um, suffer. Yeah. So um, my optimal D3, uh, I'm sorry, B12 is um, 600 to 1,000. Where, where do you land in the optimal serum? Right there. Yeah, right yeah, there. Okay, you'll, cool. you'll see studies that show that, you know, B12 deficiency in serum lab work is oftentimes, it's ne if it's negative, it's negative. Like if you're less than 500, you're deficient. Yeah. Super deficient. Right, yeah. super deficient. And, so, and it doesn't show so, up right away. So I drew someone who was 40 last week. Oh my gosh. I, I, I don't know how she's standing upright. Yeah. Like, oh such a crisis. Well, and I think well, so one of the things that I see too is, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, especially the, the iron deficiency aspect being such a big yeah. thing, but so is B12. Yeah. And a so, lot of times- And they're hand in hand. Yeah. And they're hand in hand. And here I find more B12 deficiency anemia than I do iron deficiency anemia. 
And we miss it in conventional medicine. We're like, oh, you're anemic, take iron. But that's not the problem. That's right. Right. The problem was actually the iron study and just the ferritin to really find that out. Absolutely. Well, yeah, our, our, our love overlaps. And this is what I'm going to be talking about at the conference is, is the iron piece. Um, and specifically iron deficiency without anemia, because that's an even bigger crisis that's not being dealt with. But B12 is really interesting and it's almost completely overlooked because people were like, oh, well, you're not a vegetarian. Don't worry. You must be fine but they're actually not fine. And this goes back to, again, the depletion of our, of, of our resources. Like humans used to be much more resourced a hundred years ago in terms of food source. And as we've had this real bastardization of the food supply, um, we, we've, we've really lost out as a culture. And uh, I am just devastated to see that like measurable IQ point loss from folks who birth babies when they're deficient. So what can we do? How, I mean, like there's this been this global phenomenon about folate, but nobody's talking about B12. So how can we, how can we get this into people's minds of like how important B12 is? I think it's partly, you know, understand, I think diagnosing it more, honestly, bringing the awareness out there and, you know, everybody does like a CBC in the first trimester. Yeah. And just tack on a B12. Well, and a B12, (laughs) but you can find B12 deficiency in a CBC. Yeah. So right? talk about this because when we talk about the MCH and the MCV, so t- talk about yes. this. Go ahead. Yeah. So when you look at things like MCH, MCV, like everything changes in pregnancy when you look at a CBC other than those two values. And so what you'll see is if that, and I have a different range, like you look at labs and they vary on what that upper limit of MCV is. And you'll see yeah. everything from, you know, 95 to hundred. And to me, it's if that MCV is you know, I can actually go 93, closer to that 95 range, we have a B12 issue and we need to bring that down, right? We have to supplement with B12 at that point. The other thing is, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, some of these, why, why would we be B12 deficient? Diet is obviously part of that, right? We see that more commonly in certain dietary patterns, but the other thing that we see very commonly in pregnancy is what? Heartburn. Right. And people take Tums and they do these things and they try to limit acid production. What happens sometimes when you have some of these heartburn patterns is you become B12 deficient. And sometimes it's because you're taking the antacids, but sometimes it's because the acid is getting produced on top of the chyme and not mixing in with the chyme. And therefore you can't even, even if you were taking and eating the great organ meats that are rich in B12, you're not going to get much of that B12 out of it because the acid didn't get mixed in. And we have to have intrinsic factor to absorb that B12. I think the other thing too is very interesting is you need B12 in order to absorb most of your other B vitamins. And so when you're B12 deficient, usually in hand comes all these other B vitamin issues. And golly, and I know I read it somewhere and I always reference this, but then I can't find it now. I was like, oh, I should have that reference somewhere. But it was an old, old, I mean, I, I think it was like 1960s type study that was basically saying that preeclampsia was a, a, was a disease of B vitamin deficiency way back then. And they were linking all the B vitamins and they had it as, as a group. Like if you had any issues with B vitamins, then you could get a preeclampsia without knowing things about methylation, without knowing all these different yeah. aspects, right? Which yeah, was somebody was making the clinical correlation, even they though they were. didn't have the, the biology. Yep. yep. Fascinating. Well, gosh, I just, I could just keep going on and on and on with you. You're such a wealth of knowledge. And, you know, I just, just in your last point, I was going to connect another wonderful speaker that we have coming to the conference. Um, We have really the nation's forefront perinatal chiropractic expert coming to the conference as well, Kristen. And so, because, you know, I think midwifery more than anyone understands how layered the whole process is. But so we're talking about, you know, the heartburn, the stomach acid, taking the Tums, all these things. But like, we can go even one step further and be like, do we have a hiatal hernia? Like, can we just actually pull that stomach out of the diaphragm and help to reduce that leakage that's causing that pain that causes this whole chain reaction? So um, yeah, it's all overlapping. It's all interconnected. Um, and we're going to go deep in that in November, which I'm so excited about. And I'm so grateful to chat with you. Before we kind of wrap up, do you have anything that you wish the midwives or the mamas uh, listening uh, knew? Like, what have you come across in your study when you're like, why isn't this common information? I want every care provider to know this. 
You know, I think I already touched a little bit on that. I mean, my biggest thing was the idea that nutrition plays into the progression to a functional childbirth experience. And I wish everybody understood that that did play into these functions and that it happened way back when. And that what a pregnant person is consuming from that beginning of third trimester on really plays into their ability to birth naturally. Yeah, definitely. And I wish that more midwives knew that and were able to coach their patients on, all right, are you getting liver in your diet? Are you consuming yeah. you know, enough fresh fruits and vegetables to get the vitamin C and vitamin E? Are you getting enough magnesium? How are you doing on your nuts and seeds? Are you doing a lot of cooked green leafy vegetables? All that kind of stuff so that we could help more patients have better childbirth success. And absolutely, you know, and then we, then we will never get, yeah. No, yeah. we'll never we get to never zero, get, right? No, because but, we have we have another person playing this game, and you know there's other things at play here. Sure, sure. But by doing this, we give that person in the office the greatest chance of a vaginal, natural, functional childbirth experience, which then affects their psychology and their emotions and their future childbearing and yes. their children's childbearing and this wonderful cascade of effects. Yeah, it's a pretty magical thing. And it does start way back at the beginning. Um, and uh, I think midwives know that, but the application is where it's kind of interesting. And so I'm a huge fan of Lily Nichols' work. I think you are as well. I think she wrote the forward to your book or maybe vice versa. Somehow you guys are connected. Yep, she, she wrote the cover review for my book. That's it. That's it. Yeah. So exciting. Well, uh, that resource um, around nutrition and pregnancy and recipes and all of that is a huge source, but just being clear about the basics. And so I have a really kind of simple basics that I want to run down for you. I'm going to put myself in the, in the hot seat for a second. Um, and I want to run down with you and see how you're feeling. So um, I, I talk about nutrition with my clients in terms of priorities. The first priority is that you are hydrated because nothing can work if you don't have enough liquid in your body. And um, I want you to drink to thirst plus one more sip is how I say it. And um, we're talking about all clear liquids that don't contain sugar. So I talk about bone broths and I talk about uh, herbal teas and I talk about super diluted juice and water with cucumber and mint in it, things like that. Um, and so fluid is my number one. Then I say, um, you know, if you, if you tasted your tears or your amniotic sac, you know, you'd have salt. So we need salt, you know, like salt is a major part of communication of hormones and neurons and development of everything. So we need good salt and we especially want the salt that comes along with all the minerals. So please, can we get the sea salt, the rock salt, the Himalayan salt, the red salt, all the things. Um, and then I talk about protein. I talk about fat and I talk about your rainbow. So that's kind of the way that I break it down. And so the first part Love is you it. wake up every morning and you say, have you had, like, how am I going to plan to have enough to drink today? So I encourage them to actually fill their three water, water bottle jugs and take all three with them to the office or put all three in the fridge so that they're not hampered by where do they get more? It's right with them all day. And then I ask them to salt anything that tastes bland because their taste buds are going to be the best determiner of how much salt they need. I ask them to put fat on everything and to eat at least three decks of cards of protein a day. And that's kind of a way that I visualize it for them. And then every other thing on their plate should make up the rainbow by the end of the day. So how many colors can you fit in in a day? And that's the goal. How do you feel about that general recommendation? I love it. That's a great way to simplify it for patients. I mean, hydration, 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 right? When we talk about the doubling of blood volume, it's really a 50% increase in plasma and a 35% increase in red blood cells. What is plasma? Fluids and electrolytes. The other thing is amniotic fluid, right? By the time you're 34 weeks, your amniotic fluid levels is about 300 milliliters. And you have to filter that every three hours. Or is it 600 milliliters every three hours? It's a lot. It's a whatever lot. it is. It's a lot. I can't remember. Now, no, I guess it. But you have to filter it every three hours. That's a lot. Yep. And one of my things that I actually add to that little bit of hydration is also eat your fluids. Right? Mm-hmm. Love that. Yeah. Juicy. Juicy, right? Pick, pick yeah. juicy foods like cucumbers, like you were saying, full of juice, coconut waters, yeah. full of yes. juice. So eat some melons. Uh, melons all those melons are great. Yeah. Stone fruits. Yeah. And you know, those are yeah. great for those electrolytes and those salts that you were talking about too. 
right? Love it. We Love need it. those electrolytes for sure. And I'm with you, protein, 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 fat, 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 and eating the rainbow is an easy way to get a bunch of variety and nutrient dense vegetables. Each well, and it helps them to see so the white foods that they're eating too much of, right? Yes. So if you have white on your plate, it doesn't belong in a rainbow. Like it doesn't work. Yeah. So white rice, white potatoes, white bread, it just doesn't work. We have to go to color. And not bland color, like pretty color. So you've got to get all the blues and the greens and the reds and the yellows and really go for the color. And I think it really visually, it, it can help short circuit. You know, there's so much drama about food. And I don't even mean like eating disorders. I mean, just like in general, mm-hmm. are you a vegan? Are you a vegetarian? Are you keto? Are you blah, blah, blah. Like there's right. so much drama. And if we can take out some of the drama, some of the like, uh, storytelling or, um, or the dogma about it and just go to basically what am I, look at what you're eating. Mm-hmm. Is it colorful? And that, that can change a lot and move us towards the vegetable fruit reality. Certainly there's all kinds of variations for folks that are struggling to control diabetes or people yes. who are in different stories, but in general, most healthy folks, water, yes. salt, protein, fat, and a rainbow. I like it. I like it. <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I can't wait to meet you in person. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, and you're going to do that again at the Midwifery Wisdom uh, Conference. People can pick up a lot more data from your book and tell them where can they find your book, Functional Absolutely. Maternity. So my book, Functional Maternity, Using Functional Medicine and Nutrition to Improve Pregnancy and Childbirth Outcomes, is available on Amazon. Um, so that's kind of probably the easiest source for a lot of people who are out of the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., you can also pick it up from your order it from your favorite local bookstore. I'm all about supporting the local people as much as possible. Yes. Um, just ask them to order it for you specifically. And if they get enough orders, they might just carry it. But uh, Amazon might be just the best bet for most people. Awesome. Well, <laughs> we'll include a link in the show notes and can't wait to see you in November. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. 